today on the Tearsheet Podcast. And I think the interesting thing to note is over 50% of these online gaming revenues are now generated from Asia and Middle East, right? It's no longer just in US and Europe, which are the big gamers. So there's a significant focus on solving for payment challenges uh, in those markets as well. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. An interesting thing is starting to happen with partner banks. What began as the purview of some smaller regional players is now becoming interesting to some of the largest global banks. For example, we spoke a couple weeks ago to Citi about its plans to provide partner bank services for global firms. That means a brand or fintech with global aspirations could work with a single bank in each market instead of partnering with different local players on the ground. Standard Chartered is already supporting its clients with its extensive footprint into Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. I spoke with Anand Natrajan who covers the technology, media, and fintech segments for the firm's treasury services. At a conversation that began in Las Vegas in 2022 and continued into the beginning of 2023, Anand shares his view on a wide range of topics, including evolving merchant e-commerce experiences, social commerce, gaming payments, CBDCs, and more. It was an engaging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's my talk with Anand Natrajan. Hi, Zach. So my name is Anand Natrajan. I cover the TMT and fintech segment from a cash management perspective at Standard Chartered Bank. And essentially what that means is in you know, helping clients in the TMT and fintech sectors think about payment strategy as a whole, uh, helping them think about domestic payments, cross-border payments, account structures, liquidity structures. What is the most efficient way essentially to move money from point A to point B? And you know, given obviously there's a, this, is, this is an exciting time in the payments industry, a lot of changes and developments going on all the time. I think there is no dearth of you know, topics that we end up discussing with these clients in terms of the challenges that they solve for. Uh, so yeah, pretty much covering these types of topics for clients in the fintech segment and the tech segment. Great. And welcome to the podcast, Anand. Um, and you and I had the opportunity to meet in Las Vegas in my 2020 at the end of 2022. Now we're in 2023. Yeah. I'm curious what you're hearing from clients and what you're seeing uh, about payments trends and particularly where payments trends and e-commerce intersect. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think some of the topics that we discussed a few months ago have probably even accelerated since yeah, we last touched. It's amazing made. what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I think maybe just to cover a few of the you know key themes that we are seeing in the space. I think number one uh, is on the e-commerce side. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the larger e-commerce players, there's a big focus on diversifying their merchant base across Asia and the Middle East. Right. So historically, even you know these marketplaces were sourcing merchants or products from one particular country or two or three particular countries. You know, obviously, given what we saw during COVID and the worldwide shutdown in many places, they realized that there was a significant concentration risk. Mm -hmm. So what this diversifying merchant base now means is that there are more requirements that these marketplaces have to build to pay out to merchants you know, across different uh, complicated footprints, you know, whether it's the countries like Vietnam, uh, Pakistan, for example, mm -hmm. Bangladesh. All of these have gained a little bit more prominence in terms of you know, sourcing merchants from. Uh, the, the, the other thing I would say is on the on the payment side, right? Merchants are also now looking to receive payments using alternative payment methods. So think about like QR codes and mobile wallets. It's no longer just a, you know once or twice a month settlement to a bank account. Uh, they do want the ability to get paid in multiple currencies and also in multiple uh, payment methods. So I think that's also going to impact a lot in terms of how uh, some of these marketplace companies think about the whole payment strategy and the risk management strategy uh, associated with that. 
Uh, and then I would say on the social commerce side, which for, at least for me, given where I sit in the bank, it's, it's, it's a very exciting topic uh, that, that I spend a lot of time on. Uh, the social commerce is basically the creator influencer economy, mm-hmm. right? There are so many or the YouTubers, Instagrammers, you know, people who make content uh, for these social platforms that are based in Asia, based in Middle East, right? All of these people have access to mobile phones, access to data, and they're now generating content. Uh, and usually this means that they now need to get paid in these various currencies as well. So solving for the ability to make these frequent small value payouts also becomes quite important. Uh, and then maybe the last thing I would add is on the gaming industry. I think there is a significant uh, payment opportunity in the gaming industry. And historically, the way, they, at least when I was growing up, the way you would purchase games is you would go to a shop, buy a CD, install the software on your computer, and then start playing, right? And everything Remember has changed. Those days? Yeah. <laughs> and now it's all about, you know, buying uh, access to an app uh, mm-hmm. or you buy it, you buy a game through a publishing or a distributing store. But then there are so many in, in-app, in-game purchases mm-hmm. that you end up buying, whether it's like buying avatars, buying costumes, and then you spend the $5 here or $10 there. So supporting these types of microtransactions, uh, whether it's to developers or whether it is receiving money from these gamers uh, becomes quite important as well. And I think the interesting thing to note is over 50% of these online gaming revenues are now generated from Asia and Middle East, right? It's no longer just in US and Europe, which are the big gamers. So there's a significant focus on solving for payment challenges uh, in those markets as well. So interesting. I remember 25 years ago, um, building my first app, you know, and, and micro content, there was talk at that time that micro content, micro payments will, will be the future of, of content of the written word, but it, it, that has not really happened yet, but it has totally happened in, in the gaming industry. And I'm curious, yeah. maybe, maybe you can fill us in on what's happening in the uh, streaming uh, industry and, and it's sure. in regards to payments, of course. Yeah, so I think if you look at you know the big streaming services today, right, whether it's Netflix or Disney or Amazon Prime or any of these big big services out there, in most markets when they initially launched, the payment methods that they would support are credit cards and debit cards because that used to be obviously the biggest you know payment most most frequent payment method in those markets. And this held true for US, obviously for Europe and some parts of Asia as well. Uh, but now as you start to think about you know targeting your next segment of consumers and going deeper into some of the emerging markets. Markets, uh, these companies will have to support you know, alternative payment methods, including bank account transfers, or mobile wallets, or QR code payments. So this whole thing makes the payment acceptance value proposition a little bit more challenging. Now you need to you need to find the right partners to solve for this at scale. Uh, if you had like an acquiring partner, for example, who was mainly supporting cards, and now you need to support these alternative payment methods as well, then you'll need to sort of think about how you know how to how to solve for that. Uh, but at a you know at, at a more macro level, let's say for a particular region or five or six countries at once. Uh, I think the same thing holds true for Africa as well. In a similar story where instant payments may be not yet as prevalent uh, as you would see in Asia, but mobile wallets is big, right? So people have access to phones, people have access to data, and they want to see content on their phones. Uh, but how they pay for these uh, services is predominantly through mobile wallets in, in markets like Nigeria or Kenya, for example. So the ability to support mobile wallets as a payment method, I think if these content the streaming services are able to solve for that, I think that could pre- present like a whole new you know, plethora of customers that they could get access to based on that. 
So it's interesting for me, like where, where does a company determine, obviously there's been an explosion of different types of, of, of payment types, alternative payment types. Um, and that's not even including like crypto, right? So like mm-hmm. at, at what point, how, where does a merchant or, 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 or firms that service merchants draw the line between, okay, obviously being able to accept more currencies is, is beneficial, but at a certain point, like, you know, there may not be a, a return on that. So like, I guess, how, how do you talk to clients about, about that? Yeah, so I think that that's a very valid point. And I think the big question really around that is the supporting more currencies mean that I have to do more work, right? right? The supporting more payment methods mean that I have to do more work. And I think that's really the bigger challenge. So if you are able to, and we, we, we have spent a lot of time, you know, at the bank developing solutions that basically make this not our clients work, right? So clients can now support whatever, 40, 50 different currencies for payments. But as far as integration is concerned, it is just one integration for them. So it's as you know, easy or complex as supporting, let's say three or four currencies. And everything else basically is built on the back of it. So, and I think some of the innovations in treasury management and payments have also enabled this, right? So if you look at the prevalence of APIs, you know, historically APIs were really thought of more as a technology tool for developers. Uh, but over time it has really found its way into mainstream treasury and payments as well. So as API capabilities build up, the ability for these companies to offer more payment methods and more currencies, that becomes quite streamlined as well. Uh, I think the, the, to your point, they do need to figure out uh, how many consumers, how many additional consumers can they get by supporting these local payment methods and currencies. And I think that's really sort of the turning point for them. But most uh, you know, most regulators in these markets are actually encouraging their their customers to use instant payments, to use QR code payments. So I think if, even if the shift hasn't happened yet, it is very likely that the shift may happen in the next 12 to 18 months. And if you build your platform to be ready for something like this, I think that sets you up for success in the long run. Would you think it's fair to say that this is a consumer-led um, shift? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's fairly consumer-led. I think when in most countries, when instant payments and alternative payment methods were launched, they were predominantly launched from a C to C standpoint or a B to C standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, sorry C to B standpoint. Um, so consumers are making these payments using payment methods to businesses. And the big question always was, are you going to see that shift in the B to B segment as well, right? And I would say that hasn't fully happened yet in the B to B segment, where you know payments are still predominantly done based on an invoicing uh, manner, but in the SMB space, the small and medium business segment, you're starting to see a much quicker shift in terms of moving to these alternative payments. And I think that will sort of carry through over time as well. So, um, great. So it's consumer-led shift. Um, and as you said, it hasn't necessarily hit B2B, but it is it is making uh, inroads into, into SMB. Um, what yeah. are some of the trends happening in SMB? Sure. So I would say on the in the SMB space, uh, a, a few things that we're seeing predominantly is as these SMBs are starting to, you know, sell more. Uh, historically, they were predominantly domestic. You know, during COVID, a lot of SMBs started, you know, using the likes of, you know, these global payment acquirers to start offering 
global products. So mm-hmm. they were not just limiting consumers to you know, people in their own country uh, because it was now much easier for them to just have access to a, a payment acquirer uh, who can easily settle the payments for them. Okay, so that's fine. So now I'm going to open up uh, my 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 goods or my marketplace to let's say four or five other countries. So <clears throat> that shift is we we are now seeing a lot more uh, happening in this space. Uh, in the SMB segment, I think the other thing that we're starting to notice is that they are becoming a lot more smarter about you know currency risk management. Mm-hmm. Right. So to your earlier point, as they start to sell into these various countries, uh, the the idea that they can now start receiving accounts, uh, so payments in multiple currencies, means that they now have to think about uh, how how to price their goods, right? How to you know manage, ensure that they're not ensuring a shortfall uh, whenever a product is coming being sold in a different currency. So I think they're becoming a lot smarter on the risk management segment as well, and many SMBs are starting to utilize some of these banking as a service type value propositions from some of the other fintechs and banks as well, right? That gives them access to a much more agile and nimble uh, banking platform. You know, they can open more accounts. They can open, you know, they, they, they can have a different uh, virtual accounts, for example, API enabled solutions, which historically was kept only for like the big corporates that mm-hmm. is becoming a lot more accessible to the SMB segment as well. Definitely from, from our perspective and in our coverage universe, um, we're not there yet, but SMBs have really seen a flowering, a renaissance of of new products and tools to to service them in the way that they wouldn't have had access to in you know years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that the the big question will will always be you know how how much longer are these SMBs going to be SMBs, right? Or will they become really medium and large businesses down the road? I think the prevalence of some of these payment tools uh, will enable them to significantly scale up their business. In my opinion, I do see a lot of that happening, uh, and we'll see a lot more sort of divergence uh, between companies who are adopting some of these newer payment trends and technologies and scaling up their business versus companies who choose to remain fairly domestic and that sort of you know, limits their growth and what they can do in the long run. I guess, and there's also like a bifurcation, this, this, the rise of the influencer the, or the, the solopreneur, right? The one person company, right? This yeah. is also the future as well with the gig economy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the freelancer, the gig economy space is something that we are seeing a lot. Uh, I think in the freelancer space, uh, we are we are seeing that, you know, these there are code developers, web designers, you know, people who do like one-off uh, pieces of work. You know, historically, they used to get paid on an hourly or a project basis. Uh, but the challenge with making the payments to some of these uh, you know, individuals in the past were a lot of these payments were coming through in a cross-border manner, right? So let's say that you know, somebody sitting in, in, like in, let's say, in, uh, Vietnam or Indonesia, they did the project for which they are owed let's say $200, uh, the sender sends $200 by the time it hits the bank account, all they have left is maybe $125, $150 because everything else got sucked up in like, you know, cross-border fees or fees, this and yeah. that. Right. And I think solving for that is going to be critical uh, to help these types of businesses and uh, these types of individuals scale their business quite a lot. Uh, we are actually working uh, with a few fintech partners who facilitate such payouts to help develop a more seamless payment experience. Uh, where the beneficiary or the freelancer, they receive money in a shorter amount of time. 
and actually at an FX rate that is much better than what they would get from their bank as a retail customer, because we are, we are now leveraging uh, our relationship with the fintech, for example, uh, to give them you know much better FX rate on the conversion as well, and using local payment rails uh, to get the funds out as opposed to making it a cross-border wire. So I think that's a big component of how we think about supporting some of these stuff. So that's Standard Charter. Um, I guess, how, how aware are banks like Standard Charter in terms of being able to support, how ready are they ready and, and willing to support the, the freelance economy at this point? Yeah, so look, I think if you look at our footprint, right, so our significant focus has always been on Asia, Africa, mm-hmm. and the Middle East, right? So a lot of the emerging markets, but we also have a footprint in the US, in the UK, Germany. So our goal is really to, you know, if the, most of the payments, for example, happen out of US, UK, Germany into the markets like in Asia, Middle East, and Africa. So our footprint enables us to actually help do this today. Uh, some of the challenges that we have to think about or considerations to keep in mind is really around, you know, how I know how good is our clients' KYC processes, right? Is the freelancer receiving the money at the end? Is are they receiving the money for something that they actually did, right? Uh, is any money money laundering, for example, happening uh, that maybe we're not aware of because these are all freelance. Uh, type invoices, right? So how how efficiently can we validate a payment that is going through our systems to these types of channels? So I would say the infrastructure exists today, uh, but I think the compliance aspect around that needs to be, you know, uh, needs to continually improve. Uh, so any clients that we support on the payment space in the, in the segment, I think they're all getting a lot smarter about what banks need from a compliance standpoint. Uh, and they build that into their initial sort of merchant onboarding or you know customer onboarding process fairly early on as well. So I would say we are definitely making significant strides in that space. And I would say that once we solve for like the compliance or the KYC aspect of things, and you know, we as a bank are comfortable, our customers are comfortable on the corporate side that the person receiving the funds is receiving it for legitimate purposes. The infrastructure is ready to you know, support that today. That's awesome. And I, I guess this is a corollary question to that. That question I just asked you, Anand. Um, obviously, Standard Charter with the with the legacy um, that you've had, both in terms of time, but also in terms of geography. Um, how how has how has the bank evolved over time to be able to service this type of use case, this multinational sending, receiving, different entities in there yeah yeah so i think it's been an interesting uh, journey for us as well i think a large part of it comes down to having uh, you know a focus on certain economies or certain industries and developing solutions around that so i would say in the technology and the fintech segment i personally have seen you know standchart making you know being fairly on the front foot when it comes to making some of these investments Uh, in many of the markets that we're present uh, we are present not just for corporate banking, but we're also present for you know some, some retail banking customers and mm-hmm. sort of small and medium business customers as well. So what that enables us to do is you know not just look at some of these payment solutions from a you know, large corporate lens because not everything can be you know scaled down or scaled up, uh, but actually think about these solutions more holistically for small and medium business clients or individual retail customers, and think about what payment solutions can actually marry the requirements of these two or three different. Business business verticals and you know can be rolled out more seamlessly i think one of the big focus areas for us when we were launching or sort of you know growing our you know payment space historically was the ability to scale up 
right? If you look, if you look at, and I think the ride share companies is a great example. Mm-hmm. If you think of, you know, like a ride share company, there are like thousands of trips happening at any given point in time. Uh, so all these drivers need to get paid. And historically, these drivers got paid, you know, once a month or twice a month. But that is changing, right? So you know, a lot of these rideshare companies are looking to pay their drivers, you know, or you know, anybody who's using that service more instantly. What this means is the banks that support these companies have to be able to scale up their you know, payment processing systems to be able to support thousands of transactions per second. Mm. Whereas historically, that may not, that was not necessarily, you know, a top of mind requ- uh, requirement for us. Uh, and that, so this sort of thinking has sort of changed over time. So we've made a lot of you know, investment in making sure that our payment solutions <laughs> can be scalable uh, to you know, handle these types of volumes. I think that was like a big focus of, you know, where we you know, grow the portfolio. And I think the, the other thing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the sector specialization is if you are in a position where you can, you know, Let's say we are solving for a particular solution for a U.S. fintech company. How quickly can we take it and scale it for, let's say, a fintech company in Asia or a fintech company sitting in Europe? The ability to have that global sector specialization has also helped us uh, you know, uh, scale some of these solutions in a lot more efficient manner. Interesting. And I guess, I guess in that vein, how does Standard Charter um, envision sort of those build-by-partner types of decisions that, that you guys have to make? Yeah, so I think, I mean, uh, the, I would say we definitely don't want to try and build everything under the sun because we may not be able to achieve scale, right? So I think the collaboration with you know, fintechs and other companies gives us access to an industry that we might otherwise not necessarily be directly a big player in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we, from a bank's perspective, we definitely view the fintech model as a true partnership. Uh, so we've partnered with you know companies in the past who have focused on API integrations. Then uh, may basically they act as a sort of the in, uh, intermediary between us and our clients. You know, we can of course always enable API integrations for our clients directly, but using a third-party aggregator actually makes it a lot more scalable for our clients as well because they just interface one time with the aggregator and then that gives them access to three or four banks at once. So we've realized that you know, that is probably going to be an easier solution for our clients and therefore we partnered with these fintechs as well and enabled them you know, the, the information sharing and access as needed based on client approvals uh, between us and these sort of API aggregators. In the card acquiring and processing space also, you know, we, uh, we have our own payment gateway, for example, that supports credit card, debit card acquiring. Uh, you know, we support bank account transfers, alternative payment methods. Uh, but we've also, what we've also started to notice is <clears throat> a lot of the fintechs in this space are also starting to realize that in order for them uh, to provide a comprehensive offering to customers, they also need to support bank accounts as a payment method. Right. So if you look at you know, a Stripe, for example, or an Adyen, when they initially went public, they were known to be these you know, new age, nimble, you know, credit card, debit card acquiring companies, you know, ability to, to you know, make payments using credit and debit cards. But as they started expanding into more markets, uh, they also realized that they need to build access to alternative payment methods upon their platform. Right, and now we're working with some of these companies to sort of enable that sort of access as well, uh, to make sure that you know as they grow in this space, allowing them to use a banking infrastructure to debit customers' accounts for transactions. I think that is a good example of you know how we collaborate up in this segment as well. That's a really interesting development. I'm also curious in terms of those partnerships, given your global footprint and the corridors that you serve. How important is it when you look for a partner about looking at their footprint as well? and their global ambitions. 
Yeah, and I think that's that, that, that's a fairly important point. Uh, we do tend to work with customers who either are service, uh, you know, end end beneficiaries or end customers in our footprint markets, or are present in our footprint markets and you know looking to serve customers globally, right? I think one of those one of those two things have to marry uh, for us to you know make sense in terms of developing a mutually sort of beneficial relationship. So you know the footprint overlap is is, is an important consideration for us. Uh, but you know from where I sit, uh, you know, anybody when they talk about you know the next you know billion users or the next wave of economy, you know the next you know uh, segment of uh, you know, consumers that will actually adopt new technologies a lot of it comes from uh, you know asia and africa right uh, so we definitely see that most of our clients in the us have a big focus on trying to grow the business in these markets so i think there is a big overlap there in terms of what we want to offer to these customers versus the business that they're looking to grow uh, so interestingly, you know, a lot of the clients that we work with, you know, I spend time talking to the treasury teams, but also more importantly, we spend a fair bit of time with their product teams, with their mm-hmm. business development teams, understanding what customer end user challenges they are trying to solve for, and basically developing a banking product that helps meet that requirement, right? So it's no longer a treasury relationship it, with some of these companies. It becomes a more holistic, you know, product relationship where we are both trying to solve for, you know, a seamless customer experience. Well, I guess, man, I guess that was going back to the question I asked before that, that you just touched on it. Like how has the bank evolved internally to be able to manage those different touch points with your clients? Yeah. So, so I think uh, in, in terms of the specialization within the, within the bank, we've had, you know, people uh, that we've hired from some of these companies, for example, who've held treasury roles, who've held payment roles. So we, we bought them on board to give us a little bit more insight into how some of these companies mm. think about, you know, product investment and innovation from their end. Right. So I think that gives that us more sense. insight versus us trying to solve for these things in a silo. Right. right. So we've done a fair bit of investment in that. Uh, we regularly hold, you know, so what, what we call a customer experience or client experience forums, where we invite some of these companies to share with us, you know, what their product strategy looks like and whether the way we think about rolling out our solutions, does it actually make sense, right, from mm-hmm. their perspective? And we, we the, a big component of our product investment roadmap is based on the feedback that we get from these customer experience or client experience forums, and we do take that into consideration when we uh, roll out some of these products. And you know, usually we look for, you know, I would say two or three pilot clients whenever we want to roll out something new. I, I, very rarely have we just launched a product and then looked for a customer. Uh, in most of the recent investments that you that, that you may see from Santa Chartered or product announcements, they've always been in partnership with two or three customers that was initially developed as sort of a bespoke solution for them, and then that we found can be scaled into these multiple uh, markets as well. Uh, so, for example, one of the more recent announcements that we did was something around payouts as a service, right? And the idea behind that is the ability to automate some of the steps that treasury teams and payments teams do uh, in terms of generating a payment file, you know, uh, segregating funds that need to go to party A versus party B based on algorithms or rules that they may have in mind already. If, if the rules and algorithms around that are fairly consistent, it is it is it is fairly easy to automate that entire process using 
using pre-built-in rules and guidelines that the bank can support. So we rolled this out recently, uh, not as a standalone product, but because we were able to solve this for a fintech company in Asia, you know, making payments out into multiple markets, they realized that they could outsource a lot of the payment operation stuff into this you know, automated service. So I think finding those pilot clients for some of these is a big component of how we try to scale the business as well. It makes a lot of sense. And in the remaining time that we have, I'd love to switch gears and ask you about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Um, yeah. Kind of interested in your view on them and, and more importantly, like what, what you, what your view of banks role, I guess, in, in, in making those happen. Yeah, so I think from our perspective, CBDCs are definitely a very exciting development in the blockchain space. Uh, there are a good number of banks worldwide exploring the use of CBDCs. So it's, the number is anywhere between like 60 to 80% of central banks uh, globally are exploring the use of CBDCs. So we do think it will likely go mainstream at some point, right? So Standard Chartered, from our perspective, we have participated in a trial platform that basically validates the proposition uh, mm -hmm. of using CBDCs as a means of making cross-border payments uh, in, in a more real-time manner, right? So the central banks in two or three corridors can actually work with each other to say, okay, if a payment initiated in a CBDC that is, let's say, in Hong Kong dollar can reach UAE uh, and be paid out in the local currency in a fairly real-time manner, that is possible using CBDCs. So we've actually participated in a trial platform. It's called Low Value Aggregation Services uh, that basically is testing out this proposition. And you know, based on the initial feedback that we've gotten and the results that we see, I think that seems fairly promising as well. Uh, I think we do believe that as a regulatory framework around CBDCs becomes clearer, this could present an interesting alternative to traditional currency. Uh, most countries are still adopting some sort of a hybrid model up in this case, uh, where the central bank issues the tokens and honors the claims, but they are not going to be the ones actually distributing the, uh, the CBDCs to everybody. So they're gonna you know, empanel a few participating banks, for example, who will be responsible for pretty much acting as distributors, onboarding the customers and distributing the tokens. So we therefore believe that banks will continue to play a role in the success of the solution. Uh, we don't necessarily see it as a disintermediation of the banking system. I do think it'll banks will just continue to play a role. Uh, it just moves from you know a bunch of microtransactions here and there to more aggregated services that we provide uh, to customers. And I think that the, 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 the last sort of, uh, you know, difference to think about also is this, the evolving concept of CBDCs uh, versus stable coins. So stable coins are private stable coins, right? So mm -hmm. private stable coins are obviously taking you know, prevalence in a few markets as well. And I not do so see stable that sometimes. Is, yeah, exactly. Right. And I think <laughs> the, 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 the volatility and the, all the stuff that we've seen play out in the last six months or so, three to six months, has given rise to a healthy amount of skepticism. But I do believe that the stablecoin players that will emerge out of this will actually be the more legitimate ones that actually do believe in strong governance and do believe in strong regulation uh, and actually are going to succeed as a result of some of the other players that got you know taken out uh, and now whatever players remain, I think those are the players where both the regulators and the broader industry and users are gonna have a lot more you know, confidence on. So I do think there is going to be some sort of a market for both CBDCs <clears throat> and stable coins to exist. Uh, 
the use cases for both, I think, will evolve over time. And whether it's going to be over time, you know, making payments in gaming, for example, for microtransactions, or you know, in the cross-border remittance space, which is again a very interesting uh, you know, dev, uh, uh, macro shift happening there in terms of how efficiently and quickly payments are making being done in the cross-border segment. I do think uh, CBDCs and stablecoins could have an interesting role to play in that market. Anand, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Absolutely, Zach. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it.